Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. With me is my dear friend, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Fantastic. Yeah, you see, when you wave at the microphone, the microphone doesn't pick up on What that. if I wave really For... hard at the microphone? I don't know that the sentiment will come across. I am your co-host, Mark Bigney. Happy Civic Holiday for those of you in Ontario that celebrate it. This is this is purely just a stipulated holiday, right? This is just the government saying this is a day off and nothing more, right? Just so. I'm from Quebec. Not we, a day off for me, but oh, sure. Right. <laughs> Good point. A day off for some, the lucky few. Walker works too hard to get a day off, and we don't get a day off. No. Uh, largely because we recognize that the weird parochial nature of the civic holiday of Ontario doesn't go very far its borders. I'm from Quebec. I don't understand these kinds of things. But, however, I had an excellent retort. When I was expressing my indifference and dubiousness towards stipulated civic holidays, not that I'm dubious about public holidays to get to give people days off. Make no mistake. They can't tell me you into holiday. Well, there's that too. But the response was, better this than the other ones, which are all super colonial. And I'm like, good point. <laughs> well, it's either this or we honor the memory of somebody who died 400 years ago who came here to kill a whole bunch of indigenous people on behalf of U- European colonizers. I gotta say, point taken. I can guarantee you Hallmark's got a card. (laughs) Moving on, I have two addenda from last week. I just want to make sure that... Holy, our list is ever-growing. Oh, you have some some No, no, I meant we had, like, you know, last two weeks we had one, now we got two this week. Well, I overlooked a couple things, and it's important to note. One of them is, during the Pledge of Indifference, I neglected to mention that I'm also pledged for Wolves, which is on Kickstarter. I talked about it in the news, but when we were talking about our current ongoing pledges, I neglected to remember that I'm pledged for Wolves. It is in its closing days on crowdfunding. I highly recommend you at least take a look. Wolves looks great and also looks important. And also, in my dismissive comments about Awakened Realms, saying that... That other than the writing of Tainted Grail and the excellence of Lords of Hellas, that it had mostly been amiss, someone pointed out, hey, what about The Great Wall? Which, absolutely, The Great Wall is a fine game. I forgot it, I think, largely for two reasons. Number one, it is not designed by Adam Kopinski, not that he is exclusively responsible for everything that Awakened Realms has put out. And number two, it is vastly different from everything else in Awakened Realms catalog. So it's true. it has superfluous plastic, absolutely, but I think I can be forgiven for having forgotten to include it in that category. Pledge of a difference is a little loosey-goosey anyway. No, no, no. This was <laughs> the, the, the Great Wall emendation. This is from the core offering, Walker. Oh, gotcha. The loosey-goosiness of Pledge of Indifference, I mean, after all, it is born of indifference, naturally, but I'm not indifferent to the wolves. Anyhow, this is a board gaming podcast about board games. We're going to talk about the game we reviewed last year, the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, The Aurus. We're going to talk about the games we played last week, the news, and why it doesn't matter. And then our topic this week is From the Crypt. People all the time, Walker, are sliding into my DMs 
saying, why haven't you talked about this eight-year-old game? To which the response is, I played it eight years ago. We didn't have a podcast then, and I haven't played it since, so meh. This is the segment for you. Games from the Crypt. Solid voice work. So, Walker, last year, we reviewed Korra, Rise of an Empire, by Headquarters Simulation Game Club, published by Yellow. <sighs> I, I didn't mind it, but I have... You I, liked I, it a I, lot. I quickly got rid of it. And and have not... Vindication! Have not looked back. It was one of those games that struck me as so boring and pedestrian that I was borderline offended. Okay, that's a little extreme. Uh, yeah, I, you definitely liked it more than I did at the time, and clearly you still like it more than I did now, even though you've kind of cooled on it. The only time I've thought about Korra Rise of an Empire since then has been on occasion you see it on best of uh, end of year lists, and I would get disgusted all over again. Korra is, it definitely falls into one of those categories of so bland as to be offensive. It goes way past forgettable and straight on into making me angry. I'm getting worked up talking about it, it, it once could again. Could it be tracks, Mark? Could it be like the tracks? That's that, part of it. That have tracks that are on tracks. But what else is there of the game? It is just, the there's entirety of the game is going up Very tracks. interesting cards. There's sort of. Really? Building up a dice In Korra? Pool. You know, ro- Interesting rolling those dice, you know. Rolling the dice was the most fun because you get to, you know, little dice are inherently fun. You got to roll the dice, you got to see them roll, and then you then had to return to the actual game, which was unfortunate. And that was Korra. <laughs> Rise of an Empire. So, Walker, what did you play last week? Mark, I returned to the defense of Procyon 3. And uh, we decided to try out the, the solo slash cooperative mode. And... It's a lot like, this is designed by David Turtsey and published by PSC Games. And it's much like I've been talking to you about the Catacombs solo solo, uh, cooperative mode. It just seems to be too much to worry about. If you're doing, if you're, if so for solo playing, yes. If you're going to be there by yourself, then for sure the cooperative mode would be for you. But if you're playing with two people, you're better off just two-handing the two sides. And that's what we're going to do next time. It's just too much work. It's it's the wording is a bit odd. It's a bit ambiguous. It's a little too much to do for the sake of what. So what sides does one play in the co-op version? You play the humans in the co-op version. And how are the aliens automated? They have two decks and you flip up a card for the spaceships it'll be like what is you know the danger zone and you have to sort of figure out what the danger zone oh is. boy yeah and then they start you know streaming in there it seemed almost impossible i was look i felt bad for huey it was it seemed almost impossible in some cases there's like 10 gas clouds in in certain areas and oh wow like, i don't know how we're supposed to do anything about that and whereas the other side my side just seemed so much easier and really i'd killed the queen in the second turn and, <laughs> Wow. Yeah, it was very odd. And like, and like, we, we just stopped. You know, we did about four turns. It was like, this is not sure fun. And next time, and we're, but, but it, what it did do is lock down that we enjoy the systems. We, we see the vision of what this game is well, and we want to go back to it. And we're just going to two hand it next time. I see. Yeah, David Church's solo modes, he's done a couple I want to emphasize that I really quite enjoy. I think the solo mode, the original solo mode for Anachrony was really quite good in its cleverness, in its evocation of some of the gameplay of the core game, and ease of application, which are three things that I do not typically associate with many David Turtze solo designs. The worst solo design I think I've ever played was the solo version for Blitzkrieg World War II in 20 minutes, which takes this beautifully simple worker placement game full of tension and interesting trade-offs and risks, 
and it makes the solo application at least five times as involved as your own turns. And I just, I, I was almost amazed at how it could sully such a beautifully simple design. I think at that point, if, if that's your best version of a solo mode, you then shrug and say, well, not every game needs a solo mode. But of course, marketing decisions are what marketing decisions are. I will also note, just, just to cap this off, David Schertze recently revealed on BoardGameGeek that actually he is frequently credited as the only designer of a solo mode, when in point of fact, he's kind of the head of a design team that builds solo modes. So when I say that he made a good one here and a bad one there, I can't know for certain whether it was David Schertze himself or him in conjunction with other people, or whether it was like, our joke about Eric Lang at various years of at Simon, he was just wandering through the hall at the right moment and they decide to slap his name on something. I don't know. It could be any number of these things. That and uh, the solo mode for Imperium, not the contention, not Dune, but the Civ game, the Civ card deck builder with him and Nigel Buckle. Solo there is really quite good, uh, absent the typos in the manual, of course. Well, I just want to, I don't want to breeze past the catacombs uh, solo mode either. <laughs> sure. The, the sort of camp. It has even it comes with a campaign. Anyway, there's something called the Red Box for Catacombs. Catacombs is the dexterity flicking dungeon, dungeon crawler game, and they, the Red Box has uh, solo mode or cooperative mode. And once again, like I said, it's just too much. It's it's you know tons of tokens and tiles and where to place and the monsters don't have line of sight and they don't actually flick or anything. They just have templates and just seems so much work and it just doesn't make sense just for someone just to run the bad guys. I'm going to take a look at it because I find solo and co-op dexterity games fascinating from a design perspective. We talked about this earlier. There's Flick'em Up Dead of Winter, which is beautifully brilliant in terms of the way it run it manages the zombies. It's evocative. It's simple. It's tense. It's really, really well done. A long story short, you take all the zombie figures and you dump them into a what's what would be a dice tower were it not for the fact that it's dealing with figures. And anybody that gets knocked over takes wounds and where the tower gets placed is a function of how close you are to zombies. And so it's a function of how much noise you're making and how close you get to enemies. It's great. There's also Flick Wars, which was uh, an, an interesting asymmetric miniatures game, S dexterity game, which also had a pretty good AI system that worked exclusively on the basis of rulers. Like this unit will move a certain number of rulers towards the nearest target. And then if it ends within a ruler or something, it will do a damage. Done. Easy to apply, very simple. Anyway, I'm curious to read the rules because you've I've definitely t gotten a vision from your repeated descriptions of the Catacomb Solo rules of something that would not be worth trying, but I'm curious just to see how they executed it from a conceptual level. Like I said, once again, if if solo games are the only thing you can do, then yes, that would be the way. Even yep. if, But even if I were doing Catacombs Solo right now, after reading just halfway through You'd both rules, sides it. And I would just play both sides. Yeah. and Because I'm the kind of player that I wouldn't, you know... <laughs> Wouldn't tip my, you know, it wouldn't make any right. sense. I'd, I would just have fun doing the dexterity part. Of course. And, yeah. Eminently reasonable. And that was the defense of Pokemon 3 and the new Catacombs Red Box. I got to play Snapship's Tactics. I have been waiting for Snapship's Tactics ever since I saw the toy line in an American Target. That's how they pronounce it. They pronounce it Target. It's a very sophisticated place. You're probably underdressed for it. Very fancy. It's very, it's ex very exclusive. At the Target, it's basically, I didn't do Lego when I was a child. I did Constructs. And Constructs was much simpler than Lego. <laughs> much less uh, flexible in terms of making intricate designs. And that kind of suits my sort of plodding nature. <laughs> 
And Snapships is basically at that level. It has these cubes. You slot together these cubes. You end up with a super, basically the, the superstructure of a ship. And then you start grafting on all the bells and whistles and fins and wings and thrusters and weapons and stuff like that on, onto the thing. And that was the toy line. I saw the timeline. I was like, ooh, this looks great. And then I saw that very clearly the size of the ships were like, 15 centimeters wide sometimes, so not in scale with anything that I do as a miniatures gamer at all. So I always kept it in the back of my head as maybe a cool toy to have at some point. And then they decided to make a game out of it. And indeed, the distribution model is fascinating. Look, I have no idea whether they made Snapship's tactics out of a genuine enthusiasm, as a desire to grow the line, as a desire to move dead stock, or any number of the above. But Going forward, I, this is this is a very interesting distribution model because what you do and what I got in my Kickstarter pledge, aside from the base box, was here is the toy in the same packaging that they, we send it out to Target or any number of other big box stores. And separate from that is a box of cards that turns the toy into a game piece. This is an eminently expandable line. Now, there's not really a whole lot of available other Snapships boxes that could be used in the game of Snapships as it currently, like, for example, there's a tank. There's a, there's a large dropship. And those aren't naturally suited to this style of game anyway. Anyway, let me set that aside. I'm enthusiastic about toys. As is, I think has been very clear, even from the context of the past few minutes of this single episode. Yeah, we might like toys. Remember, I think we talked about another game. Remember that did that? It was they gave you the very interesting, fun toys that shot little missiles and had little string things that lightsabers that you twist the figure and they hit each other. And they did the same sort of thing. It was like the bottom of the box was, "Hey, here's a toy that does stuff." Oh. And here's a whole game that you can use. To play I, I didn't know that the, the those old super deformed Star Wars things did that. Anyhow. Then there's the game itself. <laughs> the game itself is surprisingly quite decent. I'm not going to say that it's great, but it is certainly not a waste of time. I was expecting it to possibly be a waste of time. The way that it works is you have a ship card, and it's designed for small numbers of ship engagements. This is not trying to be X-Wing, nor is it even trying to be Talon. You're talking about one to three ships aside, and three ships is a lot. Not so much because they're complicated to manage, but because ships have a whole bunch of different components, and you can customize them. And within the context of the base game box, there's a fair amount of customization. And here's the best part about the customization walker. You're supposed to make them WYSIWYG, which is to say what you see is what you get. You want to change out the autocannon for a railgun, or indeed change out the autocannon for an extra set of fins? Snap off the autocannon and plug those fins in, baby. That's how it's supposed to work. And it was the first thing that I did is I explained the rules. We got out the ships and then Huey and I just assembled the ships. And that part was great. And then we played a game and the game was fun too. You don't pre-plan like you do in X-Wing or a lot of other uh, science fiction games. And indeed, figuring out your movement is even less complicated than, say, a game like Gaslands, which also doesn't involve pre-planning. There is a maneuver template, but you either just move short or you move long. Given the size of the bases involved, that's kind of appropriate. And sometimes collisions are a good idea. Sometimes collisions are a bad idea. For example, one of the ships has these awesome blade wings and it likes ramming things. And that, that part's great. Anyhow... The key areas of customization, as I say, are in the components. We played with just the standard setup, but even after the, the first couple of turns, I immediately thought I would swap that out for this, I would swap this out for that, I would swap that out for this. And then I don't know if that would make it a beautiful Frankenstein's monster or something hideous but effective, I don't know. At any rate, I had a very good time playing Snapships, such that I then spent, I think, about three hours afterwards sorting the components in a way that I felt would best facilitate 
uh, future customization. And I'm looking forward to future games. Not the most taxing in the world, but in terms of other tabletop miniatures games where most of the time I don't enjoy having to manage all the, the delicate metal figures, setting up the terrain, dealing with this, that, and the other, and picking up the plastic tote with all your scatter terrain and all that stuff, that I regard as a chore. The setup for Snapship Tactics, you get to play with a toy. That part's great. So what can I say? I am thoroughly charmed by Snapship's Tactics. Were it not for the toy factor, is it a game i play again? Possibly not. I don't know about probably, but possibly not. As it is, I'm looking forward to trying it again, and we've got another number of other locals, similarly toy enthusiastic, who are keen to give it a try again. This was designed by Josh Dirksen. Josh Dirksen, for what it's worth, was the fan designer of the Heroes of the Atari Cluster campaign for X-Wing. That was the fan-made co-op campaign for X-Wing. Apparently, people still play it. And he also co-designed uh, Terminator Genesis, which a number of people like Charlie Thiel, whom I trust, say is worth trying. But I've never been in a position to try. Uh, partially because of my disgust over the Terminator Genesis movie. Not that I've seen it. You know, I just have that standard sort of received wisdom that it wasn't any good. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about both those things. Anyway, Josh Dirksen, published by Snapships. Fancy that. This year, after a successful Kickstarter, I got the gameplay all-in version. I regret nothing, Walker. I regret nothing. Not a single piece of plastic is going to go to waste. And I have to say, I really hope that this toy line survives. And if the toy line survives, I really hope they continue to make board game components for it. Because as I say, just print some cards and there you go. Yeah, and I can see some cool expansions, like, you know, like the, the workshop expansion that just comes with, like, a big kit of extra weapons and 100%. stuff. And Absolutely. All sorts of interesting things. Absolutely. Space docks. And anyway, I've been playing a lot of Bookie Bookie Pew Pew. <laughs> Definitely not on Board Game Arena, because it's not on there. Why don't you use the actual name of the, of the Game Walker? It's called Wizards of the Grimoire, designed by Cole Banning and Joel Banning, published by... You're never going to guess Grimoire Games. And what this is, is a two-player battler that is a very interesting system. You're just slowly building up your collection of spells, and then you're managing your mana that's coming in, because each spell takes a certain amount of mana, and it piles on top of that spell, and one comes off every turn, so you're trying to cycle your library of spells through, so you're doing constant damage, and you can uh, update a spell every turn, sort of, you know, cycle them through your your library, lots of cards, tons of different combos. I enjoy everything about Wizards of the Grimoire, not on Board Game Arena. <laughs> right, because if it were on Alpha, you wouldn't be able to talk about it being on Alpha. Exactly. Precisely. So. precisely. I have a question, though, about your games of Wizards of the Grimoire. Just for context, we have a review copy sent to us by the designers, but you're not playing that. You're playing some possibly other version that we can't talk about. And in your games... Have you ever seen a blowout or something approaching it? In other words, and let me even define what a blowout would constitute. Have you ever seen anyone win when the next player wouldn't have won in their next turn? Yes, just the game I Great. just finished. Actually. Great. Glad to hear it. Because after about half a dozen to a dozen games, uh, collectively, we hadn't really seen in our local community. Because there's a number of other enthusiasts about Wizards of the Grimoire. But, and no one had really seen it. And basically the, the response up till now had been eh, maybe it's not possible. Maybe the game is that mythical realm of too balanced, but who cares? It's great. That's right. <laughs> Plays really fast. Much, that much even faster on board game. I mean, uh, no, on, no, 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 not no, 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 on board no, no. game arena. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I felt like something incredibly light, possibly stupid. And so I played a game of Super Fantasy Brawl. This is by Jochen Eisenhoff and published by Mythic Games. 
Anybody who's unfortunate enough to be on Mythic Games newsletter knows that they have been desperately flogging their games on sale for a long time. I had to unsubscribe uh, because it's getting very, very tiresome. And anyway, they've been liquidating their Super Fantasy Brawl stuff for a while. And the fundamental card system of Super Fantasy Brawl is promising, and the fundamental victory system of Super Fantasy Brawl is actually quite good. Every turn, you reveal a new objective, and every round, the objective cycle through. First, it's just, it's coming, but nobody can score it yet. Then it's worth a point, then it'll be worth two points for a while, then it cycles down to one point, and then it just leaves. And you have to be satisfying an objective at the top of your turn, like have more people around X space, have more people in your enemy's deployment zone. Stuff of that nature. And that part I really enjoy because when you take a fundamental skirmish engine and you give it a plurality of different victory conditions, even if they're relatively simple in terms of area majority or area control, you can get a lot of mileage of that. QV Warhammer Underworlds. That was one of the best parts about Warhammer Underworlds. It wasn't just about kills. It was about a whole bunch of different possible victory conditions. In the context of Super Fantasy Brawl, they they get a fair amount of mileage out of that because another callback to Warhammer Underworlds, you have a relatively small map, and so forcing someone to move a single hex can be very, very, very determinative. Unfortunately, it doesn't, the abilities don't really shake out to much of interest. The card play system promises a lot of diversity and a lot of interest, but it doesn't, it doesn't manifest. And so the fundamental round by round action is not as engaging as the systems could be otherwise. I think if they were willing to have the cards have greater effects, maybe greater combo effects, but then again, your card draw is so random, it would be difficult to really rest on that. It feels an awful lot like the worst randomness elements of a deck builder in that you're just drawing five cards off the top of your deck, making the best of it, and then discarding all of them at the end of your turn. And sometimes that works just fine, but in the context of making having interesting effects in a skirmishy system, I feel like it didn't really reach its full potential in the context of Super Fantasy Brawl. The miniatures are nice. What can I say? The components are good, uh, but it's... Uh, even by the standards of yours truly, who is perfectly happy to play even very, very silly and light skirmish games, it is very firmly in that category. I'm saying in a world where Aristea exists, yes. it, it is hard to find a game in that sort of category. Oh, absolutely. No, Aristea is definitely best in class as far as that's concerned. It does all those things that I was talking about much, much better in terms of a variety of victory conditions, although it more geographic in terms of, than conceptual, but nonetheless a variety. And a variety of characters and interesting card effects. But look, uh, Aristea also has a relatively considerable upfront rules challenge in terms of processing how switches work and a variety of other things with the dice effects. Super Fantasy Brawl, at least, is much, much more transparent. Uh, so you can get started more easily. But as I say, it ultimately, it, it, part, I think I would actually be more happy with Super Fantasy Brawl if the some of the structures weren't as good as they are. Like, the victory conditions are really, really well done, and there's so much potential in the card system that never really makes manifest. If if it didn't have those flashes of greatness, I might be more happy with the final product. But as it is, uh, Super Fantasy Brawl is not something I think I'll be going back to. I had played it previously online. One of the reasons why I went back to it is because, on occasion, whenever I've played something exclusively online, I figure, well, did I dislike this just because it was the digital implementation and in person, especially in the context of a minis game with the tactical, uh, with the tactile element rather of a miniature? Will I be more happy? Eh, I wasn't really so. That is Super Fantasy Brawl by Mythic Games. I got to play one of my favorite games of the moment, which is Autobahn, designed by Fabio Lupiano and Nestor Mangioni, and published by Alley Cat Games. In this game, you are sort of building up the German 
freeway system right after World War One. It's World the, War Two. Well, sorry, I said that last in, during the stream. We streamed it. Really? Right after World War Two. Uh, so the West is sort of blocked off, and well, the East is blocked off. The East is blocked off. You play in the West. Sorry, it's one of those days, everyone. Or are you a secret Soviet sleeper agent? Is Not that what's all. going on? Maybe. Okay. Could be. <laughs> Just careful what you say. Um, <laughs> could be the trigger word. Nectarine. <laughs> Don't try to guess it, Mark. It would be very dangerous. <laughs> um, so, yes, you are doing all sorts of things. You're playing cards. Wind sock. <laughs> okay, okay. You have a deck of all sorts of different colored cards, and they all correspond to the different colored freeways. So you're going to be, and you play the card to the different actions. So you're doing that action on that freeway system. At the end of your turn, your trucks are delivering goods and lots of things going on in Autobahn. The, you can check it out on the stream. It's on our YouTube live channel. Uh, it's in, it's quite long video, Mark. Yeah. You told me that this was a, a, a very long session. I mean, make no mistake, Audubon is a, is a reasonably long game. It's much longer than Fabio Lopiano's other published designs. Audubon will reliably go. If you're playing real quick with three players, I suspect you could get it down to maybe 80 minutes. But even that would be pushing it. Expect about two hours for your first play. It, it's a longer Euro. Anyway, still enjoy it. Loving Autobahn, loving the different strategies. There's three main scoring categories, or I guess four, three that you have to sort of manipulate. The fourth one is free. Kind of. Anyway, like everything about it, check it out if you can. Autobahn. Try a game called Age of Civilization. This is a super simple, stripped-down civilization game in a tiny, adorable little box. I cannot stress how adorable the box and the insert are. It's really great. Agreed. The The fundamental conceit of Age of Civilization, and it's 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 a neat little gimmick is that over the course of the game, you can have maximally three different civilizations. There's this huge deck of civilizations, and it's not just the standard uh, affair, but it's a whole bunch of, like, the Catan and the Scythians and the, the, the Melee and a whole bunch of other people and peoples over the course of history. And you start with one at the start of the game, but twice more over the next five rounds, you can either have them be conquered by you or have them conquer you, and there are reasons to do either. And that part is really cool. The rest of it is bone standard. There are these worker spaces. You go and you either get money or points, or you give money to get points. In some cases, you could theoretically give points to get money, but no, that's not how the game works. In Age of Civilization, that's already too complicated. You're just getting points flat through the action spaces, or you're buying wonders, which will give you points flat and possibly give you more points later. It's incredibly simple and stripped down, but I was relatively impressed by the amount of civilizational flavor that it gets because we're all used to the, you know, building the pyramids, building the Colossus of Rhodes, what have you. But the, the, the flow of peoples into the game as wildly ahistorical and ageographical though they may be, could the Egyptians have conquered the English? I don't know. Probably not. I think there would be barriers to that. But anyway, that's okay. We're used to, as I always say, Napoleon conquering the pyramids with a tank division, whatever. I I, I thought that part was really clever. The rest of the game, I thought Age of Civilization was forget forgettable. It was fine, procedural, mechanical, whatever. That part, though, the flood of, of civilization and peoples, that part was really cool. And I would like to see something like that in a perhaps more fleshed out civilization style game. 
True. I like the fact that the games are going to play much differently every time because your row of of extra actions, I guess we can call them, is going to come out in a different order every time. You have a set three actions that you get to do always, and then this large card of three actions slides across the other cards, and they and you have a different selection of six actions every round. And the fact that they can mix up the the order in which the the wonders that come out and the civilizations and trying to find the combos that sort of come together in a quick little six turn game i thought was not terrible yeah the the primary variation though in terms of the different actions that are available i think will mostly just redound to the importance of again the bit that's really cool the different people coming out so if you have the melee and the melee give you a bonus for fishing well has the fishing action already passed yes okay don't take the melee (laughs) they're not they're not so good now on the other hand, if you get a serious bonus to the build action, the build action is about to come up next and it's going to be available for the next three rounds, that's a good time to take the people with the build bonus. So it's not as trivial as I'm making it out to be, but again, this this variation of the actions, I think, was more a way to give spice to the civilization selection as opposed to anything else, really. There's, you know, the, the vaguest gesture at player interaction in a military competition that might happen a couple of times over the course of Age of Civilization. It's really token. Now, there are a whole bunch of additional modules that come in the teeny tiny adorable little box. You play with events. You can play with other kinds of action cards. There's a solo version. I'm curious to look through the different modules. I just didn't bother processing all the available options before a first play. So I'm looking forward to at least glancing at them. And if any of them strike me as particularly interesting, we will circle back and address them. But as it is, as I say, uh, Age of Civilization was, you know, mildly pleasing. Designed by Jeffrey CCH and published by ICE Makes. I assume this is not Immigration and Customs Enforcement. I, I hope not. I, I imagine not. That would be awkward. It would. Mark, we've been talking to a lot of cooperative talk today. Miss Over Carcassonne is a new Carcassonne game that makes it actually a cooperative game. And they also say you can add this to your your competitive Carcassonne games I wouldn't really suggest it. <laughs> I read through those rules. It seemed odd and painful and overly complicated. But there aren't enough Carcassonne expansions, Walker. It's true. Several thousand, you need several thousand and one. So in Miss Over Carcassonne, it plays very much like normal Carcassonne, except you don't have any farmers. You are building a map in Carcassonne, and there are a bunch of different things that will score. You're building little cities, you're building roads, and in normal Carcassonne, you're also building fields. There's uh, also cloisters in normal Carcassonne, not so much in mist over Carcassonne. But on a lot of these tiles, in the fields, there are these mists that are filled with ghosts. So every time you place one of these tiles, you have to fill the mists with ghosts. And how he thrusts many... his mists against the ghosts and still insists he sees the posts? Just so. Okay. You have 15 ghosts, and if you ever need to place a ghost and you cannot, then you lose the game. That is how mists work. But uh, you can sort of complete the mists like you would any other feature in Carcassonne, and when you do, you get to remove those ghosts and add them back to the pool. It has an interesting, I think it's a six sort of mission campaign, which slowly works in a bunch of different rules. So we played a few of them. It's all right. <laughs> I, I, I think I'll be playing it with Butterfly Babe more, but uh, Huey and I played a few games of it. We'll see how it goes. You're not huge on original Carcassonne, though. I play it more than I want to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But... Uh, yeah, I'm not super huge on it. And the the other the other sort of and the 
in Miss Overkirk's own, this goal is sort of to get to a certain amount of points. And so the hook is that everyone scores the points. So in, in normal Carcassonne, you're trying to stop people from getting into your cities or joining right. on your roads. And this one you want to. So in a two player game, you get two different colors. So you sort of want to try to get all four people and, and score like very large cities and get a ton of points and hopefully hit 50. I think it is in the first mission before you run out of ghosts. We certainly have not been lacking in cooperative tiling games of late. So between Dorf Romantic, Race for the Raft, and now uh, Kakasun, Gorillas in the Mists. Sorry, Gibbons in the Mists. Ghoulies. Ghoulies and the Goon. What was Ghoulies about? Goonies, rather. Goonies? You, Goonies? Please tell me you've watched Goonies. I, I can't say that I have. I a, may have, but I have no recollection of a, it whatsoever. A, a troop of young boys. Yeah, who, you see, you've lost me already. On, I on a journey... To find their manhood, Mark. So it's Stand By Me. Yes. I didn't like Stand By Me. No? No. Oh. I don't... There's, some, there's something about, you but, know, the coming of age of, of, of a bunch of young males together. I just... It doesn't do anything for me. It's got... It's got... It's got gadgets. What's that? What was that one about the gangs it's got the, where the, the, somebody it's got the bleaches shuffle. their hair? I didn't like that one either. The Outsiders? Didn't like that either. Just doesn't do it for me. I don't... So there's something about the format. It's got Hey You Guys... What? <laughs> that, that's a thing? Is that a catchphrase or is that epilepsy? Very much a catchphrase. Okay. Anyway, moving on. That's not a hat, Walker. Uh, apparently it's not. It, it was actually a, a pencil. We had a hat. A hat we came did. up in we That's had, Not a Hat. We did have a hat. And there was... <laughs> it was very telling. So, uh, <laughs> Louis started messing with me, as is his want. Uh, Louis is a fine individual, uh, a great human being. Uh, will target me at any available opportunity in any game and will harass me relentlessly when when not in other contexts and would also give you the shirt off his back. Most of my computer equipment comes from Louis secondhand. <laughs> but he started messing with me, pointing various cards like, is this the pencil or is that the pencil? Or is the pencil over here? And I'm like, stop it, stop it. I'm trying to figure <laughs> out. And then 30 seconds later, I realized looking over that he suddenly had this look of panic over his face. And I know what that look of panic is. That's the look of, I have no idea what any of these cards are. <laughs> and sure enough, we, we normally in games of that's not a hat. We keep ourselves together for I don't know about five or six transfers. Well, I thought that that actually was happening this time. I thought okay, we're finally with a group that that has played it a bunch and no. and thought Louis had it. The and, wheels went off the and, rails and, real quick. And I thought, oh well, I guess this is finally the time that this game falls apart. And then I looked down at my cards and went. <laughs> Crap. And I looked, like you said, I looked over there and it was like, oh, he doesn't know what's going on either. People started bluffing at like the third or fourth turn of, of That's Not a Hat, which is wild. It was wonderful. Ah, so good. We, we, we got to the you're just bluffing stage real quick. <laughs> so continued enjoyment for That's Not a Hat. Today we got to play Wonderland's War. This is designed by Tim Elsner, Ben Elsner, and Ian Moss and put out by Druid City Games. And it's this bag building, battling game. Push your luck. Push your luck. I think it it loses a bit when you only have it like in a six month rotation. Really? But just because there's so much to to remember every time, especially when you're teaching new people. There's all the different abilities, all the different chips. There's Wonderlarians that are that are streaming in and out on the left. There are uh, special abilities not only on your. Uh, board but on everyone else's board that you're trying to keep track of and there's just all this information whirling around there's the the what's what's when i break what's a refresh what's when i go mad so 
not playing it more often, I think, detracts from the game. I will agree with you about the distinction between busting and going mad, because that is that that is consistently a source of confusion for both news player, new players and myself. As far as Wonderlandians and the different ability chips go, that's part of the variety. I was actually thinking when we were playing, we, this time we played with the D version of the Allies. There's four different versions of the Allies. You pick a, a set, and that's how the Allies work. And I was just thinking that this is one of those times where a game can have variable setup and you actually feel like it plays significant dividends as opposed to just eating around at the margins. In Wonderland's War, I think the different ally abilities really add to considerable variety of feeling, and I very much appreciated it. I don't know that I'd want to get in a position where I immediately remembered what all the C abilities did or what all the B abilities did. I grant you that the other factional abilities are, are perhaps a little bit out of left field when you're a, a little bit rusty, but I don't think that the Wonderlandians deck can have it, can be fully internalized either because there's a fairly ample stack of them and you're not going to see that many of the course of the game. A typical game of Wonderlands where you're going to see what four or five Wonderlandians come out. Maybe uh, that's how many we had well, this on time. top of the chips though. Right. That all do different. Yeah, things we as had well. about five. We had well, three they, figures. they cycle every turn, so that's nine. You're going to see no matter what. Yeah, but even actually, if people actually don't enter, buy them, at, true. in terms of actually entering. But I mean, like you them, need yeah. to see what that you need to sort of internalize what they are to to figure out whether or not you want to try to buy I them. I suppose. I suppose. Anyway, I agree with you that there are uh, a, a number of thorny-ish corner cases that make Wonderland's War less smooth than it could be otherwise. But I don't think that's necessarily too big of a detriment. I just wish that the uh, battle resolution were a little bit faster because I don't, it, whether you're in it or not in it, uh, I think frequently you're just slugging it out, either you get to the 25, which happens a number of times, or you're just, well, there's no reason for me to 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 go out, so there's no choices involved. You're just sequentially pulling chips and you have to adjust the track and then it's like, no, 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 don't go that far, go the other. It, it, it did, we had quite a few battles go to 25 this time. It was pretty rough. And I just think that the battle resolution system, although really cool, it's a, it's a very interesting push-your-luck mechanism. It's counterintuitive, but I think that part is is relatively uh, easy enough to internalize after a couple of rounds. Is It's just too time-consuming, ultimately. That's, that, that's my biggest problem. I really enjoy Wonderland's War. I think yes. it's an incredibly clever design. I think it's a very well-realized theme with lovely components, and it's absolutely worth its playing time. But I think that if you could find a way to get everyone a little bit more disciplined in terms of the battle resolution, you could probably pull down from the two-ish hours runtime of a typical game of Wonderland's War. And I would be happy if that could be done. I just haven't seen a way to do it. Agreed. Love Wonderland's War. So glad I picked it up. Will not be getting rid of it anytime soon. And I'm happy that you have it in your collection. And the figures are uh, have now been painted by Chip the Third. They are now very visually attractive. However... Uh, they're not quite as easy to spot from across the table by virtue of the fact that they've lost their bright primary color aspect. But alas, it would be churlish. So they're just gray before. They're gray. Just like the oh, they were gray. Yes. Oh, I forgot that. Okay. Well, then I'm clearly just wrong. True. And they're going to get an upgrade. No, I shouldn't say. I guess it is sort of an upgrade pack. Soon to be arriving will be. Uh, rebalanced abilities. Rebalanced abilities for two of the main uh, leaders. There'll also be rings that we can put on the Wonderlarians to show who they belong to. Oh, that'll be handy, yes. There'll be dedicated dice for your leadership level. And uh, a new, I think some new Wonderlarian cards, maybe? I forgot. It's been so long. Okay. We played a game of Agricola, specifically the Agricola 15th Anniversary Box. 
And we've talked about Agricola a number of times on the game. This was Uwe Rosenberg's first worker placement game. Arguably one of the, not one of, one of, let me stress, before the, before the, the um actually crowd shows actually. up. One of the first worker placement games. And it's aged real, real well. Still very tight, still very engaging. Tons of toys through the occupations and the minor improvements. Just really a, a, a splendid model that's been very, very well supported over the years. However, I have a couple of gripes with the Agricola 15th edition. We ran out of a lot of different components. We played a four-player game, and I will merely point out that in the original publication, and indeed one of the versions that I've got, it would go to five players and had plenty of material for five players. The 15th anniversary box, which I believe costs two and a half kidneys, uh, did not have enough components even when resorting to multiplier tiles. We flat ran out of the ability to represent one of the key resources in Agricola. True. This I think this is reflective of the C deck that we were playing. Quite possibly. But yes, agreed. It was it, 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 it was a little unfortunate. It's a bad taste in your mouth when you have to start proxying things together. There are some people in the Agricola Cognoscenti who don't like the C and D decks because they're a little bit crazy. I quite liked the crazy. This was a very, very high scoring round. Across the four farm boards, there was a single, one single solitary unused space. And that at least gives a certain amount of visual appeal. I like being able to look around and see a whole bunch of really well-developed farms with a whole bunch of different animals and fields and stuff going on. Agricola is a joy, even when it's being tense, and it was very, like, the angst, the anguish, the feeling under the gun while still... It's very much like Spirit Island, actually, in a way, whereby even when you're doing well in Agricola, you feel like you're on the precipice of, of great disaster. And that, that to me, is a great kind of gaming experience. Again, the classic comparison is between Agricola and Caverna. Caverna is much more loose-feeling. Agricola is much more tight-feeling. I'm, I'm glad you picked that up, brought that up, because I was going to bring it up as well. And I feel as though the exact opposite, because Huey and I played really? Caverna okay. as I was preparing for this today. All right. And it's it's kind of painful playing it on Board Game Arena, not because it's, it's bad or anything, just because it's so good. Because when you play in, in real life, just like Agricola, you're constantly updating the board and reseeding all the spaces. And when this is done automatically for you, <laughs> it's like, zoop, here's all your workers. Boop, there's the board all seated <laughs> for you again. It's like, oh. Because in Caverna, you're doing feeding every turn. In Agricola, it's every three turns until near the end, then it's every two. Caverna is every turn. There's a harvest. I, I every so often, you'll, yeah. they'll say, okay, not this turn or only one per worker, but it's every turn. I, I strongly phase. disagree. The number, uh, the, the mere existence. That there is? I can show you the rule book. The mere there is a harvest every turn. It's, it's so good to interact <laughs> with a good faith interlocutor like you, Walker. The existence of the wild resources, the fact that there's all kinds of resources that fall from the sky, the adventuring mechanism that just feels so strange and bizarre and nonetheless showers you in goodies so that you can always get whatever it is that you happen to need, as opposed to Agricola where you actually have to salvage your resources and sometimes you're just flat short of reed. And if you don't have the reed, you can't do the thing, as opposed to Caverna where there's almost always a recourse. Now, sometimes economies can get too tight. This is purely a question of preference. This is not even one of those times where I will try to assert that there's good game design and bad game design. I prefer a tighter Euro experience because I think that it increases the player interaction and it increases the tension and it makes me feel like I'm further away from a pure optimization puzzle, which at the end of the day, many games were down to. But Caverna, I, I'm curious 
about all those expansions that True. have been added to Caverna. Well, I'd be willing to try be more, them. But... More on that soon. Right? Oh, well, it... because... And the other... soon now? Yes. No, okay. Almost. No? Almost. Soon. How soon is now? Uh, soon. Mr. Smith. Um, But that could also be reflective of the fact that we just played the seed deck again, which made feeding not so tight as usual. That's true, but nonetheless, people were still desperate for wood, desperate for reeds. Oh, yes. Desperate I'm, for... I'm not saying the other parts, where I'm saying yeah, yeah. the feeding part. That's okay. All yeah, I'm yeah, saying. sure. Absolutely. Yeah, no, fe- feeding feeding our families in the session of Agricola was not particularly difficult. Absolutely. That's Agricola. Specifically, the Agricola 15. I do not recommend, honestly, personally, Walker can comment. He's the one who owns it. I do not recommend the Agricola 15 version. I think you're probably better off with the smaller box that still has tons of room for any expansion decks you want to get. I suppose. <laughs> but this comes with all that really hard to get stuff, right? You're going to get all the fantasy decks and all the space decks and all those weird, hard to find expansions all in the box. It's true. Weird, I think, is the operative term. I would, I much rather have the C and D decks. Those, I think, are much better. Still strange and still a little outre, but not nearly as bad as the fairies or the, the, the science fiction nonsense. Uh, and I, I honestly, I miss uh, the original version, which went to five players, although it did. Imagine this. It had wooden discs for resources, Walker. Gross. Could you believe it? And cubes. Remember when before Animal? Oh, my. Okay. No, well, no. Strictly speaking, even from the beginning, at the very beginning of the Agricola, this is a little bit of history now. The retail version came with cubes, but there were always animals available. It was indeed one of the early shaped meeple things that people went wild over. The fact that it was also a brilliant game was sort of a happy accident. I remember when Agricola was first introduced in, in Essen, and I was, you know, looking around board game games like, why are you ever, what, what the heck is an animeeple? And people were losing their minds. So yes, there were versions of the original printing that had cubes, but the animeeples were always available. For the record. Those are the games we played this week. Now on to a brief break while we pay some bills. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And we're back to So Very Wrong About Games. Now, on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Mark, Gen Con just ended. This was the big Gen Con weekend. Yes. Oh, talk about exciting. <laughs> this has got a, Can you hear me shaking my head? No. Well, we've, I think, I know, I, I was actually looking for for games that people were talking about at, at, at Gen Con, uh-huh. and we've already talked about them all. It's sure. not that we've played them all. I guess there are some games that we want to play there, but just this year, there doesn't seem to be anything that's like standing out and jumping at me that I really have to have. I hear you. There, there are people I'd like to meet. True. But yeah, I agree with you in terms of actual products available. And Gen Con, as far as game conventions go, is very, very much commercially oriented in terms of glitzy booths. On that topic, I would like to issue another instance of a PSA inspired by Kellen from Board Game Barrage. And that is that you're going to be seeing a lot of people posting pictures of their Gen Con halls. And I encourage you to be that obnoxious person and show up and ask them, how many of these did you buy? 
because, and you know what? You'll be doing them a favor. Because according to the FCC, they have to declare which ones they've bought. No, I'm serious. It's true. In all social media promotional posts, they are technically by law, and technically by law means in point of fact by law, required to disclose which ones were given away for promotional purposes. You're doing them a favor. You're keeping them away from the feds. Protect an influencer from the feds. Ask them which one they purchased. Do a good deed. Keep them out of jail. I would do this, except I have, true story, been blocked by some people for having asked this question. So I cannot do this on social media. <laughs> Disclosure will save us all, Walker. So, so true. All right. Well, EVE Online. I have never played it. I had a friend that was famous in EVE Online. But... It's such a good story. <laughs> I should have you on an episode of Bloat just to tell that story. It's true. We should get him to tell the story. He knows all the more specifics. I can just tell you that. Anyway. Long story short, there's going to be a board game, EVE Online, the board game. There have already been EVE Online board games, actually. Have there? Yeah. They, I haven't tried them, but apparently they're very bad. Oh, well, this is going to be a new one. It's by Titan Forge Games. They've done extremely popular games, such as ones I've never heard of. But they've done them. <laughs> I, went, I went on their But they exist. No they one exist. can deny that they exist. It's true. At maybe, least on Board Game Geek. And just because I haven't heard them or played them doesn't mean they're not good. They no, might, that's what it means, actually. They might be good. Mark, there is a game coming out that is sort of in the world of Maracaibo. It's Pirates of Maracaibo. This is designed by Ralph Bennert and Ryan Hendrickson and Alexander Pfister. And in their own words, this is much like Expeditions is to Scythe. This is what... This is to Maracaibo. Pirates of Maracaibo to Maracaibo. This is going to be published by DLP Games. They're hoping it's going to be picked up by Capstone here in North America. Go check it out. There is a page on Board Game Geek, and it should be have more information soon. Guilty Gear, Walker. I've been playing a lot of Guilty Gear lately. Very badly. That's how I play fighting games. I play them very, very badly. I think for five hot seconds, I was kind of okay at King of Fighters 13. But then those seconds ended, and now I'm just back at very badly. I think someday it would be great. It would be hard to control for the population, but I would really like to have a tournament of really crappy fighting game players and then see what happens. That would be interesting. Because there's some people, this is this is a digression, of course, who run fighting games online of fighting games that are so obscure that nobody there has played them. That's one thing, but the people who do that are still good at fighting games, and so I don't think that's... Anyway, Guilty Gear... Super strange, incredibly weird, but very compelling. There's going to be what is billed as the Guilty Gear board game. It's not really a board game. This is Season 7 of Exceed, Level 99's card game spinoff of Battlecon. It's totally Exceed. They're not really emphasizing that. I think they're trying to go for more crossover audience. For example, Evo, the esports fighting game event, also recently uh, has been going on. And they were demoing that at the Arc System Works booth. Well, anyway, if you're at all curious, uh, Level 99 has this fascinating program. They've done this before for Exceed, where they will send you two full decks for free. You just have to pay shipping. And here they will send you the two decks of the two most compelling characters, I think, in Guilty Gear. Saul Bad Guy, actual name, and Kai Kisk, the incredible Normcore protagonist who uh, whom I like to play. Anyway, so you can go to Level 99 Games. There's no entry for this yet on Board Game Geek. Uh, I think this is largely because Level 99 has been coy with the information. Again, they're trying to... It's weird. I, when I consume the promotional material, I get the vibe that they're trying to pretend like this is an entirely new thing. When, again, it's Season 7 of Exceed. I'm not sure. That could be conspirational thinking, talking. Guilty Gear, the board game, a.k.a. Exceed Season 7. 
Sometimes I get rid of a game, Mark, like Crusaders or games like that. And then, you know, I get the urge or, you know, because I, I like them, but they never get to the table. So I let them, I let them out into the world, Mark. I let them spread their wings and, and hopefully other people will find joy in them. Yes. One of those games was Coliseum. Coliseum is going to get yet another uh, edition. It's going to be on crowdfunding soon. Of all the Days of Wonder games... If you had asked me during the heyday of Days of Wonder, which one of these games is going to see three separate editions, I would not have bet on Colosseum. And yet here we are. Here we are. Fantasia is going to be putting out this edition. Uh, Tasty Minstrel had put out the last one. There was big hubbub about the art, and it was so cartoony, and it was very contrast to the original Days of Wonder one. So anyway, this one looks like it's going a little bit back to the original Days of Wonder. It looks a little more serious and 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 dull and brown <laughs> but but maybe i i'll take a look at it more than likely i'll get it again <laughs> third time's the charm third time's the charm and lastly for me everyone liked foundations of rome mark i should say like the strong yeah, it, it was popular yes and it was very expensive oh, it was yes. very garish and huge and over the top so they're now going to put out Arcane Wonders is going to put out put out just a retail edition, oh, all cardboard, but they're going to totally change the theme and the setting. Oh, it's going to be called Foundations Metropolis, and it'll be just normal, you know, urban buildings and stuff like that. It'll be interesting to see. Are they going to have a new all cardboard edition, but still have a giant metal first player marker for no reason? That would be amazing. That'd be great. I love. I'd love that. <laughs> uh, finally, for me, again on the topic of Gen Con. Uh, Gen Con has announced that it has made an arrangement to remain in Indianapolis, Indiana, up until 2030. Now, that's whatever it is. People have various thoughts about the appropriateness of Indianapolis as a city for much of anything, but it does have a good convention center. But this is in the context of Gen Con, for the past couple of years, issuing a variety of statements about how they really don't like how the state of Indiana is, say, criminalizing trans people, threatening librarians with criminal punishment if they put up, quote-unquote, banned books, a variety of bathroom bills, a variety of other ways to deny gender-affirming care from youth and even adults in some cases. There's a long list of deplorable things that have come out of the Indiana State House, And sure enough, Gen Con says, oh, well, you know, we're very concerned. This is clearly rainbow washing. You can't express concern out of one side of your mouth and then re-up for another six years with the other. So this is clearly just talk. I'm not saying that we should therefore boycott Gen Con or what have you. It certainly doesn't make me eager to go to the state of Indiana. That's for sure. But I think we should stop letting companies like Gen Con get away with being able to express their disapproval when it doesn't amount to absolutely anything. And so it's a little disgusting in light of their even recent comments tutting at the state of Indiana, and now they're going to re-up for this period of time. Clearly, their principles on this issue do not extend to even a slight modification of their business practices, and I think everyone should know that. That is the news, and as Walker would say, why it sometimes matters. Now, on to our topic. Our topic this week is, Walker, give us the voice. Games from the Crypt. Well, thank you very much. That was great. So, people all the time want to say, why haven't you talked about Game X on the podcast? Well, we had a hobby life before the podcast. We did. And although, as a result of the podcast, we chronicle and broadcast most every element of our hobby life, we don't necessarily feel the need to go back into the deep cuts that occupied our hobby life before the podcast. Until now! 
So <laughs> the, I've received some specific questions about some specific games from users. And so I figured if it was interest to them, it might be of interest to other people. And as well, this might also be an opportunity, at least in my case, I don't know how Walker's going to be approaching it, to offer a glimpse into what we were like as hobbyists in the deep, dark years of just after the turn of the century and such, or even before that. Yeah, way, way, way back, Mark, there was the game. It was called Sticky Sticky Rock. It was designed (laughs) by Gluck Gluck, published by The Clearing on the Left. Those are good times, Mark. Were they? Were they? Good really old longer? sticky, sticky rock. <laughs> I thought that was back when life was solitary, poor, brutish, nasty, and short. <laughs> All right, let's talk about some games that we've already talked about very quickly. Okay. Coliseum is a great game where you are putting on a Coliseum show. It's not all. It's not about gladiators fighting each other. There are gladiators. There are, there are gladiators. But that's not what the game is about. There's acrobats and animals, and you are... It's recipe fulfillment is what it is. It was one of the earliest of the recipe fulfillment of that nature. Let me ask you a question. I have two questions. Number one, did you play Princes of Florence? No. Because Princes of Florence was very, very, very much the progenitor of Coliseum. Coliseum is kind of a slightly lighter, slightly more forgiving version of Princes of Florence. Princes of Florence was a late 90s Euro, very popular for many years. That was of the fundamental structure of first we auction some goods and then we do some actions. And it was the same thing. You were putting on performances. You'd build buildings to make your performances better. You'd hire artists to do various things and you'd put on shows or well, commission works of art in the context of the Renaissance. That was my first question. My second question is, uh, I... I assume I already know the answer. Did you get rid of Coliseum just because you didn't hit the table often enough? Yes, just so. Okay. So like we already said, there's going to be a new version coming up. Uh, It has a very interesting scoring mechanism where you are just going to keep your highest score. So if you got a great score in the very first round and maybe it'll hold up, not likely, but uh, yes. And it's sort of, I, I think it's three rounds. It's been a while, but I think it's three rounds. You can even spend a whole turn sort of building up. Yeah. And, Princess of Florence worked the same way. And uh, hopefully, you know, that one big show at the end is going to get you the points you need. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I, just to be clear, I'm not saying, yeah, the same as Princess of Florence to, to argue that therefore Coliseum has no reason to exist. Gotcha. They both strike me as equally worthy games, to be frank, although Coliseum is naturally a little bit more derivative. And Caverna, we've already talked about. It's very much Agricola-like. You're putting out workers, you're collecting uh Animals, sheep and cows and donkeys, but there's this whole cave network and Caverna has put out two very big, uh, expansions. They have the usual Euro, you know, calendar expansions, uh, you know, uh, convention expansions. Just check it out on Board Game Geek. You'll see a full page of different things you can get for Caverna. And in the pre-podcast days, you were very much of the opinion that Caverna, that you preferred Caverna to Agricola. You, in fact, would make disparaging comments about Agricola, mostly to troll me, but not exclusively to troll me. Just so. And I wonder if your opinion has shifted a little bit from that position. I think so. I think it's pretty well even now, I think. But this is without playing these expansions very often. I've only played the Forgotten Folk uh, twice. Okay. What Forgotten Folk does is introduce all sorts of different races to to Caverna. In Caverna, you're only playing dwarves. Now you can play tree men and elves and orcs and tree people. I tree hope. people. Yeah. All sorts of different uh, 
uh, fantasy type races. And then what frantic fiends does is introduce orcs that are attacking. I haven't played it yet, so I don't want to talk too much about it. Does it, it make it co-op or just introduce I, more pressure? I think it's just more pressure. Okay. Fair enough. I'd be, I'd be very curious about that. Of course, at that point, after adding two expansions, one wonders if the, 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 the structure of the game would start the to collapse creep, under yeah. its own, yeah, exactly. Under its own weight, start to get to the not worth it point. I think we'll find out soon because like I said, just played Cavern again. So now I'm just sort of a bit more up in the rules and I think it would be a lot easier just to get out onto the table yeah. and, and get, I'd, I'd happily play Cavern. I mean, I prefer these, Gorka, uh, but I'd happily try the, the expansions. I have a specific question about your gaming past Walker. Sure. Because you used to be, Far more of a miniatures gamer than I ever than I've ever been, and yet when it comes to the podcast, I think it's fair to say that I talk far more about miniatures games than you do. What was there an appeal that the games once had that no longer calls to you? Was it just that was available in the local locality and you never were really into it and glad to move on to something else? Like well, it's mostly it's just mostly the time now. It's just sure. I don't have time and and the 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 lockdown of the rules where, you know, the miniature game is a little loosey goosey. It's like, you know, measuring and, and sometimes the rules don't sort of, I don't think it's as locked. Uh, down the analog, as, the analog nature uh, bothers you. You prefer the more digital aspect of rules. I mean, digital, not like computers, no. but digital in the sense of move two squares. Exactly. Not, yeah, yeah, yeah. not just, you know, this tape measure that's, you know, as coasting as you're moving yeah. the miniature and, and something people need weirdness. to understand about Walker. Uh, Walker gets, <laughs> I'm trying not to be overly pejorative here. It's almost a neurosis. When it comes time for Walker to move his own unit, it's not even that he's concerned, concerned about other people. It's like, he really moved 2.1 inches rather than 2 inches. No, no, no. That's the concern that Walker has for himself. If he's moving something and it gets nudged a little bit, he he takes that personally. It's 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 really strange. I mean, it does you credit. And, and, and the painting. Of fairness, yeah, but. and the painting. And, sure, sure. And, and the tournament scenes. It, oh, yeah. I, I remember it so much much more inviting before all these tournaments started. I see. It was more like we just got together. We threw less, we threw together. Oh, there, there, there was a local 40 K scene with that predated the tournament scene. Here? One, oh, one, wow. Okay. Oh yeah. It, it ended at the tournament scene. Sure. Okay. It was like I said, I had 22 people showing up every yeah. Saturday. No, no, that I, I remember those. Stories, and yeah. It was fantasy battle. It was 40 K. It was lists. Let's do a list with the magic. Let's do, you know, four on four. Let's do all yep. these, these weird things. And then, the tournament scene started and everyone just sort of like yeah. locked down their lists and only wanted to play certain things yep. and got way more competitive. And, oh, yeah. and it, I was just done. Yep. Respectable. Completely understandable. So here's a, here's a couple of uh, games that were very, 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 very widespread in the hobby scene that we have not really talked about. Battlestar Galactica. Just a second. Yeah, Walker's recovering. He's, he seems to be seized with some sort of... I threw up a little in my mouth. Yeah. What do you hate about Battlestar Galactica, Walker? Well, I hate Other how... than the fact that everyone around the table immediately starts talking about, and I quote, fracking toasters, end quote. Odd that you would say that, human. Yeah. Anyway, that part I enjoyed. It was, it was mostly just the interaction and the fun that we had. And then it would just go on and on. It would go on for two hours. It was too long. And you're just Only doing... two hours? And Those you're... are quick games. Oh, I know. That's true. <laughs> and you're just doing the same thing over yes. and over again, throwing cards into a pile. It's like, yep. oh, we lost. We Oh, yeah. no. Yeah, it was just really long and really incremental. And the fundamental conceit of the card system I thought was really clever, but it was just dr run to death. And I also really didn't like how, in many instances, the trader became stronger after they revealed, not weaker. And so there was precious little incentive for them not to just go. It, it becomes more boring, but stronger. 
And there was such a narrow path to take. Everyone was watching everyone else like, oh, that seemed vaguely suboptimal to the brig with you, which was just an elaborated skip a turn mechanism anyway. And then it was changed into Dark Moon. And a lot of people, or initially Battlestar Galactica Express, that was the first version that I played. Uh, what was your? Did, you've played Dark Moon at yeah, least a couple. I times, remember right? it being all right. Yeah, it's all. Yeah, that that's mostly my impression. It's okay. It doesn't really capture all the good stuff of Battlestar Galactica, but it captures enough and is vast. I would I would much sooner play Dark Moon over Battlestar Galactica. It's a little more complicated than it needs to be. A little more procedural than it wants to be. And but you know the dice system is okay and the the fundamentals are there. But it just doesn't really grab me. And you've played uh, un- unfathomable. Have you not? Have I? I thought you did. No, I haven't played Unfathomable. Oh, neither. I, oh, I thought one of us did. No, no, no. I, I mean, I just didn't see. I saw that it was sufficiently similar to Battlestar Galactica, and I just didn't see the need. Yeah, I think it became massively popular because it came at the same time the show did, and then... Uh, yeah. It was one, yeah. Well, it was during the heyday of Fantasy Flight when they were still publishing games. Speaking of the heyday of Fantasy Flight, is it Corey... Kineska. Corey Kineska. Let's go on a Corey Kineska journey. Oh, boy. Of, do we have of, to? We do. All sorts of games that I used to play of Corey Kineska. Descent, Journeys in the Dark, Second Edition, Star Wars, Imperial Assault, Star Wars Rebellion. All of these games, Corey Kineska was one of the designers. Of course, it was, like you said, in the fan, in the Fantasy Flight heyday when they had a huge... Uh, you know, swath of designers putting out tons of games. Yeah, it, Descent Second Edition was Kevin Wilson and Corey Kaneska, right? Uh, Descent was Corey Kaneska, Adam Sadler, and Kevin Wilson. Yeah, and I still I have kept all of these games. Sorry, did I say all? Yes, I have kept all of these games. Okay. Uh, I still have Descent Second Edition. Want to get back to it? They have this app with all sorts of different. Uh, uh, campaigns on it so you don't have to have a bad guy these are all not all the the rebellion is not five against all but right they these other two definitely came out as 4v1 games that have definitely fallen away in the so i played descent third edition and i talked about it in the podcast interesting but didn't really come together i i wish there was a version of descent that had the scope and interest of Descent the Descent First Edition and didn't last three hours. Because I think Descent the Second Edition was one of those things that just went too far in the other direction. Just I move and attack, I move and attack, I move and attack, I move and attack. And I, I felt like all the good bits of Descent had just been stripped out. Do I want to play the first edition of Descent? No. Sorry, did I say three hours? Probably more like four. And just, you know, endless murder of kobolds and just churning through things. I really appreciate the structure of Descent Second Edition. But I wish they could have preserved the gameplay of Descent first. And so the dungeon crawl itself has, for for me, largely been supplanted by things like Street Masters. So I'm not really in the market for such things anymore. But for a while, when I was still bouncing around looking for a good dungeon crawl, I was absolutely like bashing my head against the various Descents, wishing they could give me what I wanted. So Descent has that, that die roll that everyone hates where you roll an X and you just miss. Straight up miss, regardless of what items mind. you have. And then Star Wars Imperial Assault came out where it was the opposite. A lot of characters had what they called dodge, and they could just dodge your attack outright. And and rightly so, I think, that people just enjoyed that better. Sure. It's, it's better than someone, you know, dodge your attack, then you right out miss. Imperial Assault also has a huge app. I love what they did with the fact that they didn't put any of the main characters 
as a playable character. Yeah, they that, just show up. Yeah, and, they'd usually yeah. like peek their head out, you know, and give you some inspirational speech. Look, is that Han Solo? Oh, he's yeah. gone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He'd like <laughs> run down the alley and you'd have to chase him. And yeah, very brief. I like the fact, you know, sure. that, that they didn't center everything around them. On the topic of silly skirmish games, I only played Imperial Assault the once. It was the skirmish mode. I was shocked at how decent I found. Yeah, that's that was the other really cool thing about Imperial Assault is the fact that there's two game modes. You could do the whole campaign where it was, uh, you know, a group of heroes against uh, the bad guy, or you could make up armies, and it was a very interesting. I played the skirmish game a ton of times, and you had this wide variety of different units you could take. Very interesting. Still own Imperial Salt. Will not get rid of it. Will play again soon, I'm sure. And last but not least, a game that I want to play with you soon, hopefully, and that is Star Wars Rebellion. This is very much uh, compared to War of the Ring, very often. It's a pseudo. They say, wow, you're really they, selling it. They say you can play four-player, but it's really a oh, two-player sure, yeah, yeah. game. You're sending the heroes on missions. The, you know, the rebel base is hidden and you're trying to, you know, find out where it is. You're moving troops around. There's an expansion for it that's supposed to clear up the combat and make it more interesting. It has been put into the box, but never played. <laughs> I did play the normal rebellion quite a few times. So hopefully one day soon you'll hear old Mark complain how I subjected him to something so, so painful. Who knows? More Fantasy Flight from back in the day. This has been the most frequently requested game for comment, and that is Android Netrunner, which is to say the resurrected version of Netrunner. It was resurrected again by a fan community that then went legit, so, I mean, that's interesting. I played Android Netrunner, like, two or three times, and even at the time when I played I played it shortly after it was released in the teens, and my reaction was that, number one, it is interesting that this is a pure action efficiency game in the form of a deck builder rather than, sorry, in a deck construction game, rather than your typical combat trappings or, or uh, things of that nature. That's potentially interesting. But I am not in the market for deck construction. Not my scene. Don't want to do it. I mean, it drove me away from Warhammer Underworlds, and it certainly didn't endear me to Android Netrunner. There are people in the Netrunner community who will swear up and down that by virtue of the fact that it is the second coming of all good things, that with constructed decks, it's just as good. I played with the anemic Fantasy Flight starter sets at the time. I didn't find them especially interesting, but I wasn't driven to... to re I have no doubt that if it's your thing, it is absolutely your thing. Go forth and enjoy your Android. I have no interest. I think we're going to have to bite the bullet, Mark, and go and buy a couple of these new Underworld decks. Because the way they're doing it the now. New, the new yeah, format, you yeah. Just, you know, buy a deck and you play with that. No more deck building. Could be interesting. Maybe. For Netrunner, I, the problem was I played it several times, but it was always with people who have played it a lot. Uh, I think if sure. I played it, if, if I had purchased it and it was me and, and one other person learning it together, yep. I might have enjoyed it more, but it was just me getting sure. beat down over and over again. Yeah, and, and there was never a local scene for it. Even the people that were heavy into it, there were just about two or three people that were heavily into it, and all they could do was play each other, and that was it. So in Kingston, there was never really an opportunity. Also, in the same universe, there was New Angeles, which I played once, thoroughly enjoyed. Very interesting negotiation game. Three hours. I would say you had a long time to consider whether it was good or not. Yeah, yeah. A three-hour negotiation it... game. And I am self-aware enough to know that three-hour negotiation games, very niche audience, right? So for the people who thought that Sidereal Confluence was too quick and too simple, New Angeles exists. I thought it was very interesting. Now, I didn't think it was great because the asymmetric scoring conditions 
could be very arbitrary and weird, and it suffered from a lot of the asymmetric scoring conditions that the games of this ilk have. You basically, what you pull the identity of an opponent, and in order to win, you need to do better than them. So that's weird enough. But if you pull yourself, then there's some weird condition. But the problem is, if you're playing a game and you pull yourself, that increases the possibility of someone else drawing themselves. And you can end up in a in our game, we had two people that pulled themselves. And that was just such a weird scoring setup, and, and they never really felt like they were in a position to win. Uh, so even the people who found it structurally interesting didn't like the scoring elements. And, and even the people who did like all those things weren't necessarily in the mood for three hours of haggling. I thought it was interesting. I would happily play it again, but it's definitely a bit of a big ask and not what the local community wanted to play. I was, yeah, I was, I was in that game. Oh, I, I forgot you were there. I was there. I know you probably forgot you forget. <laughs> actually that reminded me of something let's talk about another game i had that maybe some people want to hear about and that's just android straight up yeah vanilla android yeah this was such a weird game oh yeah it looked bizarre i've never played it oh no it had such potential like i don't even know if I, if I want to say potential it, it had lots of very interesting moving parts the the design was amazing you every character had this crazy psychological deck that you were just breaking. You were going mad. You were, you were remembering the death of your partner or the divorce or, or the fact that you're an Android and you're, and you're fighting with this, these new feelings of humanity. And so you're going down these different paths in your deck. And that was just one part. And then you're moving these hover cars all over the place, yep. going up and with down calipers, little cardboard calipers. Yes. And then you're building this interesting puzzle of different conspiracies. And then, and then, then this is where it broke down. You're like throwing all these chits on these characters (laughs) and and you're making some more guilty than others. And I just really, people really reacted badly to that. Yeah. I just, I just felt there was no mystery to solve. There was no guilty culprit. The game, it was basically an area majority game where whoever had the most guilt thrown onto them was the guilty party. Yeah. There were some characters or some cards that you'd get through that you let you look at some of the tokens. So you might get a, a feeling of who might sure. come out guilty at the end. And that's where you, with the conspiracy puzzle on the side, you would, you would manipulate that. But unfortunately that I felt that's where the game broke down a bit. Other than that, the, everything about it was very interesting and very well done and looked great. And the had, reason gave the re- me the feel. The reason why I was never inclined to try it was by by that point, I was already thoroughly disgusted with a lot of uh, Fantasy Flight's design philosophy. And I saw the sprawling disconnected mechanisms, including the weird pathing mini game of tiling and things like that. And I, uh, this, I read the rules and I said, these do not look like they hang together at all well at all. And so I was not inclined to try it. But... Uh, a lot of people still swear by by Android. It still has a bit of a, a tiny little niche following to this day. Yeah, I had it. It it flew flew away. Flew away on the wings of a cardboard caliper. One game I did not let fly away, Mark. One of my starting games, of course, was Axe and Allies. But this one is Axe and Allies World War One. Came out in 2013, designed by Larry Harris Jr., published by Avalon Hill. And this is, like I said, a World War One game. Yeah, you've mentioned it twice on the podcast, the, exclusively in the context of your top ten. The tanks were all period tanks. The map was very interesting because it was like sort of done in like a globe, but the center was on Europe, so every, Africa was all stretched out. It gave you that really weird feeling that you know this is where the focus is, type thing. And uh, 
much like the Mercator projection. Just so. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, the 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 combos with the what do they call the synergy? I guess you know having support, air support, having how everything worked together. I think it was my favorite of all the Axis and Allies game, and I definitely want to get it to the table again. On the topic of war games. For a long time when I lived in Boston, I would do what I called war councils. Usually about once a month, have cucumber sandwiches and have a whole bunch of people over for a multiplayer historical war game. Those are thin on the ground, relatively speaking, comparatively. And so I, I, we went through a number. Uh, a couple that we tried that we bounced off of. One of them is Sword of Rome. Really didn't like Sword of Rome. The CRT was wild. You could amass all the forces in the world and be opposed by a small amount of dudes, and that would get you a plus one modifier, and you might lose your entire army on a, on a fluke roll. It was a very, very long game where combat losses could be disastrous, and the CRT did not support any of that. So, ugh, did not like Sword of Rome. We tried Here I Stand. Here I Stand was fascinating. We played it almost to the end, and then we got to the point where we'd all been fighting tooth and nail. We were all, the scores were really tight and we're like, this is exhausting, but impressive. And then someone drew a card from the, from the last era deck and said, uh, this just gives me two points flat. And we're like, well, let's call it on that. And so, <laughs> and scene. yeah, so, so here I stand. It was fascinating. We never, we never did get to try Virgin Queen. We had a day set aside for Virgin Queen and then someone bailed 20 minutes before the start of the game. This is not pro-social behavior. The two that we played the most often, and I've mentioned them on the podcast, but not in the context of, of having played, was Successors. We played a bunch of Successors 3rd Edition. Still haven't played 4th Edition. Brilliant game. And La Révolution Française, which is a six-player, heavily asymmetric game about the French Revolution. Super, super great. I did a video review of it, on, uh, of it for... All the games are like are bad, but I haven't really talked about it on the podcast because every time I talk, uh, try to talk about it, Walker starts rolling his eyes. Uh, but it's a... Very strange, very dated, but brilliant and iconoclastic design uh, from the 90s. So those are the games that cycled in and out of the War Councils. 90s. That's not dated. You want dated? 1959. Okay. That's when Diplomacy first sure. came out. And this is just like an all-day game. This is why this is something that doesn't come out. For those that don't know what Diplomacy is, it is a very... I don't want to say basic, but it is very basic. Oh, yeah. Sort of very stripped down. Stripped down combat. It's like, I am pushing with my one, and you are defending with one, so they just bounce and do nothing. But, oh, look, this this person beside me. The Austro-Hungarians have. Has, has decided they're going to support. Yeah. And, and so now you have two to their one, and so you are allowed to push in. And this is all done with very intricate uh, written orders. That must be all. Everyone puts their orders in. I suppose not every group do they have to be intricate, but we just made that a rule because you could accidentally, in air quotes, <laughs> not you know write the orders properly, and therefore they they oh wow did not wow did not uh, okay. Well, that is one of the things you do in a game like that when you've been caught. You can plead ignorance. Just so. so did you prefer it? Uh, in person, or did you play any online? Do you have any thoughts we on did, We did some online, but no, in person is definitely by far the best way to go. I've, so I've done it both ways, and I have to say that there are, I, I find virtues to both. Uh, I, I In terms of a, a purity of vision, diplomacy is hard to beat, right? It's just a, absolutely head and shoulders above uh, a bunch of others. The thing is, though, that the all-day version I find grueling. To a certain extent. It's kind of like New Angeles, right? After three hours of negotiation, eh, Papa needs a nap. And diplomacy with like five, six, seven hours, like, ugh, someone betray me and put me out of my misery or something. 
the but I that's one of the reasons why I kind of liked it online. You could play by forum, have moves be submitted either every day or every week. You could write these long emails in character. There'd be time to think about these things. The problem there is people often start to lose attention and then things get to drop off and they 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 can stretch on into infinity. I I see virtues in both modes. Uh, I, I, is, is diplomacy the kind of thing you might want to organize again or is, oh, is for it sure. Just, Cause yeah. I was thinking about that, of doing that. My other idea was to do it at a convention, but do it like over all three days. Oh, right? sure. And a hybrid people, model. People would like submit orders every two hours or so. Interesting. And then it would be like, just sort of set up at the front and then you'd, they'd submit their orders and someone sure. would do all the moves and then, you know, stuff like, I think that might be interesting. I'm not sure. Sure. It's an interesting idea. Similarly, in terms of uh, war game adjacent stuff that's pretty old, I have talked on this podcast about Magic Realm. I've talked about Merchant of Venus, that one even recently. The third game that Richard Hamlin designed that I still keep around is called Gunslinger. Gunslinger is a game about Wild West gunfights. It is perhaps one of the purest expressions of Richard Hamlin's mad genius. It is remarkably detailed in terms of what firearms do in a way that's entirely almost unnecessary. A given turn of the game lasts two seconds of real time, and every two-second turn is subdivided into five phases. And so every action... Well, it doesn't take long to shoot someone dead. It, it really so, doesn't. <laughs> it really, so a, a given game of Gunslinger, it can go up to seven players, and it might last you know 90 to 120 minutes, and uh, it might represent 10 seconds of, of real-life planning. So... All I did during this game was I dove behind the cover of this uh, this 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 horse till, and then I popped my head out, aimed my carbine, but then got my head blown off. That might be a session report of Gunslinger. It was great, not not a great competitive experience, but in terms of cinematic moments and just weird design flourishes, there were some of them ahead of their time, some behind their time, at the, even in the eighties. Fascinating. If you haven't played a Richard Hamblin game, you owe it to yourself. Pick the one that you think is best. If you want to process 80 pages of rules, go for Magic Realm. If you like Pick Up and Deliver, play Merchant of Venus. Or if you really like Wild West and bizarre pre-programming, Gunslinger. On the story of Magic Realm, when looking for stuff for the news today, Mark, whoever has the rights to Magic Realm wants to put it back out. What, really? Yes. And they I thought part of the problem was no one knows who has the rights to Magic Realm. Apparently someone, someone has them. And they're asking for help from the community to, to not for money or anything, but for ideas. Oh, to, is this? To, okay. There are always, uh, this is a person who claims they have it. I haven't read very much about it. Every it was, few it was, years, somebody shows up and says, Hey, I, I cracked the code and I found the rights. And then they get a cease and desist from Hasbro. <laughs> it's a thing that's happened. A number, I'm not saying this is, this is going to be true again, but okay. I'll, 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 I'll take I'll a try look. try to get more information. I'll take I'll a look. I'll take a look. Lastly, I form of the day. I talk about it a lot when when we when we once in a while play it. I still own it. I have a ton of tracks. Uh, Asmodee brought it back out again, and they were and luckily they made it so all the tracks from the old set can be used for the new stuff. Brought out six to seven more new tracks. And the other side, they have like street racing, which makes it you know I don't want to say silly, but more flavorful and interesting little side gimmicks on each track. I just really love Form of the Day. It's a pusher luck with with fancy dice that don't have normal numbers on them. I guess the numbers are normal, but not normal in other dice. <laughs> I, I'm familiar with irrational numbers. I'm not familiar with abnormal numbers. <laughs> they don't all go down. They don't they don't all start at one. Right. The D thirty is not one to thirty. It starts at twenty. And That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Just so. <laughs> 
It's a very interesting push-your-luck game. I love it. We'll never get rid of it. Form of the day. Two games that I used to play all the time in my pre-swag hobby existence, but I don't really play much at all anymore for different reasons. One of them is the Kuchfart Zulteufelsberg, which was much later released in English as Coach Ride to Devil's Castle. This was the big multiplayer, you've got more than six people together game because it predates the resistance, it predates Secret Hitler, and at the time, the big alternative was Bang. I hate Bang. Or, and, or Red Dragon Inn. Or Red Dragon Inn. And so when Coochfart came out, as we affectionately call it, uh, we gave it a shot and it immediately became the new group game. And I've played dozens of it now. It was designed by the designers of Dorf Romantic, the board game. And let so when I saw their names attached to it. Let me just type in Coochfart. I'm sure it'll come up. Yeah, no, no, no. But the reason why I don't play Coochfart anymore is because the Resistance exists. They weren't the exact same game. It was a team-based game. You didn't know who your allies were. And so a lot of it was jockeying for that. But the Resistance is just cleaner and better. But Coochfart was well ahead of its time. And it definitely dominated our group for, for a long, long time. Uh, I, I think I would now still prefer Bloodbound. Bloodbound is the more closer analog uh, to conventional games. Anyway, and uh, another game which is still in my top 10. I played this hundreds of times. One of the best games of all time, Lupin Louie. Despite the fact that locals like Dexterity Game, every time I've tried to get Lupin Louie to the table, they get that same look on their face that Walker has right now. I haven't even seen your box of Lupin Louie, so don't even try to say I have two boxes of Lupin Louie. I've tried. I've tried. There's been hostility and suspicion. I will play it any time. Okay. All right. Fine. I think you should know me. If it's a Dexterity Game, I will play it. Will you play by the tournament rules and be willing to get up off your seat? Uh, For sure. Okay. Fine. All right. Good. It's on. And since you... I have to mention another one because you talked about... Figuring out who your who your teammates are. Yes, Incognito. What another fabulous game! Ah, uh, yes. It's didn't we? T- I think we talked about recently that it's going to get yet another reprint. So that's the plan. I I still haven't played it in the original version. So all right. So if it comes back out again, be sure you're going to hear about it because I will grab it again because I love every bit of Incognito. You're trying to figure out who your partner is, then once you do that, you look in the little book. It'll say, well, if Madame Zaza. You're Madame Zaza, and if Fiddlebottom is your is your partner, then you have to meet at at the Storybrook corner on the corner of uh, Storybrook and Wisterhoven, and <laughs> and so you start heading there, and you got to hope that Fiddlebottom knows that you're Madame Zaza, <laughs> and just all of a sudden in the middle of the game, you're going to say we win, and you're going to hope that 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 person was your actual partner and all of those things. It's a great game. Anyway, incognito. So that is a glimpse into our pre-podcast life. Of course, this cannot be comprehensive. There are indeed dozens and hundreds of games that we play. If we haven't brought them up, they didn't rise to the level of salience such that we felt the need to address them here. You can assume that either we weren't interested or played them and thought they were fine. They're all trash. Well, no, I we, I we, we I brought don't. up some of the instances of things we didn't like, but... There's a whole lot of people like, why haven't you played this? It's like, well, it was a mediocre Euro Tableau Builder 10 years ago. Didn't feel the need. So there you go. So that's going to do it for this week for So Very Wrong About Games. Thank you very, very much for joining us. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can find all our contact information at sowronggames.com slash contact. We are available on a variety of social media. We will read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. We hope to see you again soon. Please do take care. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. 
You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.